You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. For those of you who are stopping by for the very first time, my name is Donna G and the show is The More The Merrier. Welcome. On today's show, I have two guests from the theatre world, one from the area of dance and one from the area of stage. Sandra Laurent will be joining me to talk about a performance that's coming up at Can Stage Berkeley Street Theatre. And for that one, I will have a sweet giveaway at the end of our interview. The performance is called Migus, Underwater Panther. Then later in the show, you'll be hearing from Amanda Lynn about her work Between a Walk and a Hot Pot, which is presented by Kahoot Theatre and runs January 28th to February 12th. So keep a lot to CIUT 89.5 FM. The more the merrier with Donna G. That is a promotional piece of music from Migus, Underwater Panther. Red Sky Performance presents this piece on January 22nd to the 29th at Can Stage Berkeley Street Theatre, 26 Berkeley Street. And joining me to talk about Migus is the director and choreographer, Sandra Laurent. If you go to redskyperformance.com, you will see all the initiatives, hard work, and accolades that she has acquired over the years. At the end of my interview with Sandra, I will have a special treat for a lucky member of the listening audience, but you have to stay tuned to find out the details. Here now is my interview with Sandra Laurent. Sandra Laurent, I would first like to ask you about Red Sky Performance. You founded this in 2000, and you're the executive and artistic director of Red Sky Performance. Why did you decide to to found this company? I decided to um, um, found Red Sky back in 2000 because there was a lot of work that I was not seeing on the stage when I went to see a performance, I would think, you know, it could be this, it could be that. And I never saw what I wanted to see on stage. And I thought, well, I'll just have to make it happen. Um, and also, I, I've, I did find that a lot of things that I did see at the time, I would go into the theater hoping to find a story that was somehow inspiring that was an indigenous story that had inspiration. And often I felt like I was leaving the theater a little bit smaller than when I came through the door um, because the stories often were very um, issue oriented or really about, uh, you know, kind of the, the sadder moments in our trajectory as indigenous people. So I really wanted to, you know, I wanted Red Sky to be, to have a really big vision and uh, to not be limited by what our issues are and to really drive it from our incredible beauty that is at the center of our culture. And as well, when audiences come through the door, they leave larger than when they first came in. 
they feel elated, elevated, inspired in some way. That was very, very important to me. Sandra, I can so relate to that as a Black woman. Um, You know, I understand when voices have been suppressed um, through oppression for so many years that people want to talk about it and express it. But sometimes for myself, I also am missing, you know, that feeling larger than myself, feeling like a Black woman, am I only just issues? So listening to you just now talking about why you founded Red Sky Performance, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for Mm -hmm. doing that because there is an audience um, for what you do um, at at Red Sky Performance. And uh, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. I understand that feeling of, you know, leaving the theater feeling bigger than, than yourself. So you founded Red Sky in 2000. So here we are in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, the going could not have been easy for you. Can you tell me some of the challenges that you faced over the years? Um, you know, the challenges are is I would say that um, there's such a demand for our work, for what we do. Good. And the challenge is is to meet the demand of what people want. And like, for example, just this January, it's just like, oh, my God, there's so many um, opportunities and we can't take them all. (laughs) I wish we could. And they're amazing opportunities. So, you know, we have the show going up at Canadian Stage World Premiere. It'll go off on tour, you know, to United States and Canada, uh, you know, down Stance's 25th anniversary, the Kennedy Center, etc. And then simultaneously, we have another show that is happening called Adazokan, which is with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. And that's with the Symphony Orchestra in Winnipeg, and it's for a completely different show. And then we have our children's show that's going to be, you know, going out on tour soon. So it's just been amazingly busy and that has been a challenge is meeting the demand now the other challenge if we back it up to 2000 that's the current day challenges the the challenge out of the gate was um i think that audiences tended to have a very cliche um idea of what indigenous performance is um because they've never been exposed to something else so it makes sense that they may not know what's out there. And when I first started, I would say, no, it's going to be really good. You know, <laughs> it's not going to be what you have in your mind. I'm telling you. And they would walk out and say, I just was not expecting that. And I love that comment. So that's that had to change. And then with the media, they would often ask me questions that were fundamentally flawed questions. And I would have to reposition the question and then answer it. And then um, help them with the phrasing of that question almost, and then answer it. So the media was a, a, you really have to learn how to relate to the media and help them in a way to rephrase their question sometimes, and then answer the question that you would love for audiences to hear. So you're kind of almost, you know, in a way you're, you're deciding what that narrative is and you're helping the media to tell that story, not the other way around. What kind of questions were you being asked? Oh, um, 
they might just be like, oh, is there going to be like feathers? And, you know, and I said, well, in this show, yes, we will have some feathers and regalia. And it's what, you know, typically, you know, an audience might um, expect, but it's going to, it's going to move from there to something else because we are contemporary as well as we are traditional and traditional and contemporary are very fluid, um, you know, and so, and often they want to see, they were just, it, it was more about what I could see, which was in their mind. And then how do you move that mindset to something else for them to expect something else for them to, you know, that was kind of along the lines of what I needed for them. Sorry, my phone is ringing. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, and then we went, when we went, uh, we did a big, we did, we did a big tour in Europe in 2019, five weeks in Germany, Netherlands, uh, Poland, and Belgium. And it felt like I was tossed back into the early 2000s with Red Sky in Canada, and they were asking very similar questions, you know. Um, so, but I know in 22 years, there has been a vast change. It still needs to be changed, but it has really grown the press is different now. The media is different. You know, we pretty much sell out shows almost every time. We do really well. It's very, very exciting, I have to say. <laughs> that's good that after 22 <laughs> years, it's still exciting. Yes, it is. Because that's, that's going to keep you going and growing. Yes, absolutely. So um, your your name translates in English to Red Sky Eagle Woman. Mm-hmm. Can you say it sure. in your language? Sure. It's in Anishinaabe Moen, which is the Ojibwe language, Anishinaabe language. And it's Misko Gijigakwe. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love your response. Okay. <laughs> I'm not even going to attempt. I know. And I'm from the Tmigmaw Anishinaabe, which is the people of the deep water in Tomogamy, uh, Northern Ontario, but I'm based in Toronto. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Now, moving on to uh, the performance that's going to be at Can Stage Berkeley, running from January 22nd to the 29th. Mm-hmm. It's called um, Migas Underwater Panther. Mm-hmm. What is the name of Migas? What is the uh, meaning of Migas? Migas means a lot of things. Migas is basically this very small shell, actually. But in the shell, there is an origin story of how humans were created. So the shell represents an origin story. The shell actually comes from the Atlantic Ocean. And on this great migration of the Anishinaabe from the Atlantic Ocean towards the Great Lakes area, that shell was brought with us a long time ago. It's still used in our culture. It's still part of our ceremony. It's still part of our cultural knowledge. Um, But that shell represents many things. And on stage, I kind of, in my imagination, I kind of blew the shell up really, really, really large. So six bodies fit inside the shell. And you kind of see the birth of humankind at the very, very beginning in this gorgeous beautiful as they emerge from the shell it's it's just stunning and then the shell uh later becomes it it transforms into many things it becomes like you know it becomes um a boat a canoe it travels on water because you know when we made this uh 
great migration, this formidable journey a long time ago, because the prophecy was that we were to move westward um, or we would end up perishing. So imagine a migrations, a migration of millions of people moving from the Atlantic Ocean towards the Great Lakes area. Some people did turn back and go back. Some people went different places, but primarily we ended up here and around the Great Lakes. So a journey from salt water to fresh water. And uh, that shell came with us all along the way. And the shell was kind of a, a guide in many ways um, to this. Similarly, you know, you have the Holy Grail, you know, with Europeans where you see the Holy Grail up in the sky and they're kind of following it. And, and it was a guide. The same way the shell, the mega shell was also a guide to us. And what are the seven prophecies that's associated with this? That's a longer conversation, but there are seven prophecies and we're we're kind of working with the third prophecy was to of the seven fire prophecies, which was to move westward to a place where food grows on the water. OK, so, so this is the third prophecy. OK, yes. and we're talking hydroponics. They were talking hydroponics about food that grows on the water, which was manomen, which is wild rice. And that was the area that we were to move towards. Uh, to a place where food grows on the water, and that is wild rice. Now, the mm-hmm. second part of the title is Underwater Panther. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me more about that part. The Underwater Panther is um, a beautiful panthress, <laughs> first of all. And uh, when we were making our journey along this journey, um, this is a real story, by the way. This is not just a made-up story of this journey. This is a real story of why we are where we are and that we are alive. Our people knew that we had to move. Um, so that being said, along the way, we, of course, uh, stories were created. There were helpers. There were mist, what we call mystery beings. And the underwater panther is one of them. And the underwater panther is basically kind of this... Um, uh, water being that sort of is in charge, shall we say, of um, the condition of the water, whether that's, you know, calm, whether it's a big storm, whether a boat capsizes, it's primarily a helper, but it does have a destructive energy to it, meaning it could capsize a boat, as we do see happens in Migas Underwater Panther. The boat is capsized, and we do see a bit of the underwater world for a while. So she or he is the uh, kind of the ruler of the uh, water world. Now, it, uh, it's featuring, uh, as you said, uh, six dancers. Um, mm-hmm. do, you, do you have um, permanent company or do you audition um, for every piece? Okay. It's a, of, it's a bit of both. We work with core artists that we always work with. And then we bring in new people, new energies, uh, new ways of working. So for example, there's one character in this where I needed somebody really theatrical, um, a dancer, of course, but with a real sense of theatricality and drama because of the nature of this encounter. And um, so, so I needed to find a different kind of mover for that. And um, so it really just depends on the project. Uh, And uh, there's a core group that always sort of comes with us. And then we bring in new dancers. 
Okay. So who's core and who's new um, to to this uh, entity of Migas? Uh, We we have Eddie Elliott, who was an associate artist with Red Sky for about four or five years. And so he is a core artist. Uh, Kristen Dameron, as well, has been um, involved with this project all along, as well as other projects with Red Sky. And um, Moira Humana has been working with us as well. And then new are three new people. So three sort of core and three new. Okay. And um, who are the, the newer people that you've got? Is, I think I think on my list I have uh, Mio. Yeah, Mio Sakamoto, Jason Martin, and Daniela Carmona. Okay. Mm-hmm. And who is the theatrical person that you mentioned? Oh, they're all theatrical. Oh, <laughs> oh, theatrical. I see. But the but the real theatrics for this one sort of darker, rich character, that's Jason. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is a contemporary um, production. So yes. I'm expecting expecting your dancers to be sweating. <laughs> oh, totally. They're going to be sweating from the first scene. <laughs> Because one of the things we're known for is our athleticism and our really high energy. And uh, we that comes, of course, in this work. But so does the yummy sort of slower. And all the music is live. This score is extraordinarily beautiful. And that, when you hear that singing, I, it's so moving. Um, so we have four musicians, live musicians, that will be also performing. Can you speak their names so the audience uh, sure, we have knows it? Facts. We have Aura uh, Tukaki Barlow. We have uh, Marie Godet, who's from Wakimkong, Manitoulin Islands. And um, we have Ian D'Souza. So we have uh, um, a mallet cat, and we have uh, a drums, a V-drums, a cajon with a lot of Indigenous instruments being played, as well as a bass guitar and just two amazing vocalists who sing both contemporary music as well as traditional. Okay, and this is a mix of I I see that there's some there's going to be some animation and video as well as yes. part of this piece. Can you yes. tell us more about developing that process? Yeah, that process is um, really great because you're using a single image to tell a a story. Sometimes it's the whole image. Sometimes it's going to be a barrage of images. Sometimes it's just a beautiful um, sense of of the natural landscape. And the water is so mesmerizing, of course, always. So many films start with water because it is mesmerizing. Um, So it's a mix of motion graphics, video and animation. And a woman by the name of Febby Tan has done all of that for us. And it's it's quite beautiful. Yeah. Can you talk to me about the the costumes? Because with dancers being so athletic, you the costumes have to work um, for the performance. Uh, Do you do you work with the costume designer on this or is this something that they sort of um, envision after you've gone through rehearsals? It's a bit of both. We have a conversation at the top and sort of talking about the theme of the work and obviously talking about costume and how it has to fit the dancer so they can move freely. Nothing gets, you know, no costume that, you know, 
something gets snagged on it or it just mm-hmm. and with all the the duets and the trios and the ensemble work you know we can't have anything that's we, we need something very close to the body we love to show the body and the muscularity and the beauty of the body um as well in our work so um yeah so it's a bit of both we talk about it at the beginning then we, we go back and forth and collaborate a little bit on the design but ultimately it's the designer who comes up with the design but there is a sense of sort of shared language at first and then she will come in her name is leslie hampton and she's actually um an indigenous fashion designer and i'm having her work and developing her so that she moves all can also work within costume design within dance and theater as well so uh, that's been really exciting for her and for us as well and um, it's great we we have a very similar language um, the fashion world and obviously dance and theater because we're talking about aesthetic we're talking about the look we're talking about but what's different for us is we need it to be very very practical you know um so those are interesting conversations yeah um what about your conversation with um alice norton uh who does the hair and makeup yes when does she come in well she comes in probably to watch uh, i shouldn't say probably she will be coming and watching rehearsals and then we have a conversation about the look that we want uh we don't do too much with hair and makeup, but we just make it shine. We polish, we make it shine. But clearly, if there's a character that's a little bit more dramatic, then we might add some more to it. But what she does, she always adds such a beautiful touch. And it just makes everything just glisten and shine and 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 work a bit. And just make it look just she just makes everything look better. Everything you've said you know, has sparked my imagination. And I look forward to to seeing it um, on the stage in all its fullness. And uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, leaving the theater uh, larger than how I went in. Mm-hmm. So Sandra LaRonde, thank you so much for joining me and talking about Migas Underwater Panther. Jim McGwitch, Donna. Thank you. Okay, so here's a sweet treat. I have a pair of tickets to give away to the Tuesday, January 24th performance, 8 p.m. at Can Stage Berkeley Street Theatre. The question is, what is the name of the animal that is mentioned in the title of the performance? Again, what is the name of the animal that is mentioned in the title of of the performance. Send your answers to TMTM with Donna G at CIUT.FM. Again, the email address is TMTM with Donna G at CIUT.FM. A random winner will be selected on January the 20th at 5 p.m. This contest is not associated with CIUT, so please do not contact the station. Red Sky Performance has done the courtesy of giving me these two tickets to give away. Please do not contact them about the tickets. Send your answer to my email address, tmtmwithdonnagy 
at CIUT.FM and answer the question, what is the name of the animal that is mentioned in the title of the performance? If you can't remember my email address or you don't have time right now to copy it down, simply go to www.ciut.fm, click on the more the merrier. My email address is there. Good luck.
That track is called Zibi, Z-I-I-B-I, and it is an original piece of music by Red Sky Performance, Rick Sachs with Julian Cote, Pura Fay, Marie Godet, Mark Marilainen, and Pierre Mongeon. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM, The More the Merrier with Donna G. listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G. And joining me by Zoom is playwright Amanda Lynn. Her play, Between a Walk and a Hot Pot, will be presented by Cahoots Theatre and runs January 28th until February 12th at the BMO Incubator 
right inside the theater center at 1115 Queen Street West. So Amanda Lynn. Hello. We, hi, we have never spoken before. No, so, first time. Um, let's introduce ourselves. You know that I'm the host of this show, The More Than Merrier, where I love to talk about um, people in the art and uh, what drives them. So what drives you, Amanda, uh, to to write this play? It's a great question. Um so I actually started writing this play between a walk and a hot pot five years ago now. So it's been in my life for quite some time. And I actually, it was very uh, innocuous. Like I started writing this over the holidays. I was in my fourth year of university and I was home in my childhood bedroom and a little bit bored. <laughs> so I just started writing a play. At first it was just going to be um, I was just thinking about different kinds of foods and stories that I had about my family and my experiences with food and culture. And over time, it slowly changed and morphed into the play that it is now. How did it come to the attention of Cahoots? So I um, I did a test run of the play. I was going to school in Kingston at the time. So I did a test run of the play in Kingston. Um, so an important important context for this show is that it's dinner theater. So the audience eats hot pot during the show. Um, so the uh, the test run in Kingston was kind of to have the audience eat and see how that went. And then from there, I moved to Toronto after graduating and I applied. I was just applying for a bunch of things, um, trying to get my start in the theater industry. And I ended up uh, submitting the play to the Ergo Arts Festival, which is a festival of new works run by Anna Pappas, really incredible work. Um, and they focus on plays that are written by female or non-binary or gender non-conforming artists that pass the Bechdel test. Um, so I got to have some connections to other artists in Toronto through that festival. Um, one of those people was Marjorie Chan, who at the time was the artistic director at Cahoots, and Kenzie Tsang, who's still performing in the piece, and also Lin Kwan, who's the dramaturg of the piece still. Um, and then it just kind of was a right place, right time situation where I was working at Cahoots like five hours a week, just doing uh, admin. I was basically the filing person. I filed things. Um, and at that time was when Tanisha Tate was just taking over as the artistic director at Cahoots. And I don't quite remember why I sent my script. I think it was that I was doing, um, I'd received recommender grant funding from Cahoots in the past. And so I thought, well, maybe they want an update on like how that went. <laughs> so I sent them a copy of the script and Tanisha read it. And it happened to be around the time that she was looking to program shows. Um, so yeah, she, I remember I went into work one day and the general manager at the time, Kat, uh, was like, oh, Tanisha wants to speak to you. And I was like, okay, I'll call her. I kind of assumed it had to do with my filing duties or something. Mm -hmm. um, and she told me that she wanted to program my play, which was just uh, such a, a, a happy surprise for me. Um, and originally it was supposed to happen in 2021. And then we all know what happened. So here right, we are, exactly. Yeah. So um uh, one thing, um, a couple of things, actually. Mm. Um, you mentioned Bechtel test. Mm -hmm. For our listeners who are not familiar with that term, can you explain it, please? Yeah, of course. So the Bechtel test was um, uh, invented by Alison Bechtel, who's, uh, I believe, a graphic artist. Um, also is the musical Fun Home, if you've heard of that. That musical is about Alison Bechtel's life. 
Um, but the Bechdel test is essentially in a movie or TV show or play, it uh, you pass the test by having two female characters that have a conversation that is not about men. Um, and I believe there's actually, I don't remember the name of it, but I believe there's like another version of the test that includes non-binary and gender non-conforming um, characters as well. But that's the Bechdel test, essentially. The other thing, uh, some people might be familiar with Lancashire Hot Pot. What is the Asian version of the hot pot? Ooh, I actually haven't heard of, uh, what is it, Lancashire Hot Pot? Lancashire Hot Pot, yeah. What's that? <laughs> um, it's a sort of a beef mutton sort of stew covered uh, with potatoes on the top oh. or puff pastry. Oh, that sounds great. Okay, I'm going to have to check this out. Um, I, so yeah, Asian Hot Pot uh, originates in China, but it's definitely made its way. And I think a lot of Asian countries have their version of the hot pot. Uh, so what it is, is that you have a pot and it's, uh, kind of like, I guess, a comparable Western equivalent would be fondue. So everyone at the table is cooking as they're eating. Um, there's a broth in the pot and you have all these raw ingredients. Some are like pre-cooked, like fish balls, but need to be heated up. And you put the food into the pot and you cook it in the pot and then you take it out and you eat it. So it's a very communal dish. Definitely something that I missed during the pandemic because it's very hard to order hot pot or to have hot pot by yourself. Yeah, it's a communal experience. It's mm -hmm. kind of defeats, I think would make it even more lonely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> to and have hot pot by yourself. <laughs> and it's also just so much food too. Like, and especially if you want to have lots of different ingredients, it really uh, behooves you to have lots of people there because then you can share lots of different things and try different flavors. Right. And it spurs the conversation as well. Mm -hmm, totally. It's a very, very long meal. The show itself is 90 minutes, not as long as a regular hot pot meal would be. Um, but what I have hot pot every Christmas with my family, and it's usually like hours and hours. Um, there's all this prep going into it where my mom will be like, okay, wear your stretchy pants. Like, make sure you're not eating too much before because you want to be able to eat as much as humanly possible. <laughs> and it's um, it's just very nice. It's warm. I'm really glad that we get to do the show in the winter because you can eat hot pot year round, but it's especially nice when it's cold outside and you're in a soup mood. Um and yeah, it takes a it takes a long time to cook and eat, and you get to like have lots of conversations and just engage in an activity together. Okay, so set the stage or area for me. What is the? I walk through. I've got my ticket. I walk through the mm -hmm. door. What can I expect in terms of a set or the staging? Okay, so first of all, there's two different kinds of tickets you can purchase. Um, one is including the food. So that means that you as an audience member get to sit at a table and eat hot pot during the show. And then there's also non-food tickets for the folks that want to come see the show, but maybe don't want to eat or for whatever reason, or maybe have allergies or dietary restrictions. And those seats are along the sides. So you get to watch. It will smell very good. So I will say that if you're coming and not getting a food ticket, like it would be smart to eat food beforehand because <laughs> um, it smells delicious. Uh, so the set is designed by Echo Zhou, who's incredibly talented. In the script, I just wrote, like, it's like a Chinese restaurant. Like, the the whole kind of the main character who's based on me but isn't me is a little bit naive. And so the set is, in the script, it's described as, like, as if white people were doing an impression of Asian people. So it's very, like, traditionally, like, Chinese and Oriental. Um, there's, like, a bunch of different tables set up. There's some posters all over the walls. 
Um, and there's a demo table at the front where I spend a lot of my time showing how to cook the meal. And then also the stage manager table, which is on the stage. So you'll get to see kind of all of the goings on of the show as it happens. Oh, interesting. Now, how does this work? Um, we're not quite out of COVID. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the um, safety measures that are going to be in place for this show? Yeah, that's a really great question. This is something that has, which is part of the reason why this show has had to be pushed so many times. Um, so anyone who's purchasing a food ticket is required to do a COVID test on site. Um, so you'll come half an hour early, you'll take a COVID test, and then when it's negative, you're able to go into the space. So folks that don't want to take a COVID test for whatever reason should purchase a non-food ticket, and those people will remain masked the entire time. Uh, so it's only once you've taken the COVID test that you can go inside and eat and um, take your mask off. And all the team members, like every day of rehearsal, we've been testing as well. And there's the tables are in uh, seats, there's, they seat four or two. So if you come with a group of that size, you can be sure to be sitting with the people that you already know. Um, If you have less or more than that, then there might be some splitting up. Uh, The pots themselves also have a divider in the middle. So you can kind of stick on your side of the pot if you want. Now, we've set the stage. Let's introduce uh, your character of Mm -hmm. Mandy. Um, Mm -hmm. How old old is is Mandy and uh, what are some of her concerns? Um, Mandy doesn't have a strict age in the script. At the time, it was kind of the age that I was when I was writing it. Um, It's this person that's just graduated from school and is really, really keen to make it in the theater industry. Very excited, but a little bit naive on how she's going to go about that. Um, So I guess in my mind, Mandy's probably around like 21. Um, And she's very much concerned with, on the surface level, she just wants her show to go well. She wants the the sponsors and the supporters to be happy with it. Um, And she wants to really, she's really excited to bring this dish hot pot to people and to like spread the word (laughs) about this, uh, this culinary experience. Um, But I would say that on a deeper level, the things that she comes to realize during the show, but like maybe wouldn't be so upfront about is she's very much concerned with making her community of um, other Asian people, East Asian people proud of feeling like she's she has this big fear of being seen as inauthentic, um, especially as someone that's kind of between cultures. Um, I personally, I'm Taiwanese Canadian, but I was born in Canada. Um, Both my parents were born in Taiwan. I don't speak Mandarin. um, So I've often felt like not quite like I fit into Canadian culture, but then I'll go back to Taiwan and they'll like look at me funny because I can't speak Mandarin. So that's kind of underlying a lot of Mandy's concerns throughout the show of feeling like she has to be a certain person in order to fit into what people want from her. Right. And I think a lot of people in uh, in Canada um, are feeling the way Mandy feels. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a definitely experience that's happening here. And, you know, worldwide, if you move from one culture to another, and, you know, if you don't fit the, um, I don't want to say stereotype, if you don't fit mm. the image of what, of how you look on, of how you present on the outside, then, um, you know, that can make people uncomfortable, whether it's, you know, Mandy or the person who's interacting with Mandy. Yeah, for sure. And another element of the show that I wanted to talk about is just the pressure on 
any sort of marginalized artist to explain their identity. There's that whole trend of the identity play, which I read a lot of in university and was, especially when I was starting to read like plays by non-white playwrights, I was very, very excited by. Um, but as I was writing my own, I guess, identity play, I was starting to question like, why do I feel like I need to do this? Who is this for? Um, so in the show, there's this fictional funding body called the Canada Council for Greater Diversity in the Arts. Um, and so I, with this show, I try to, I kind of want to explore um, the pressure on any sort of marginalized artists to feel like they need to go through their past traumas or explain their identity to an audience and just how, like, consciously, consciously or not, you often feel like that's the kind of story I need to tell if I want to get funding and support and when that can be um, helpful and when that might be unhelpful. Mm-hmm. It's like the fact that um, you want to be seen mm-hmm. um, because of the underrepresentation, but you don't want to always be presenting the same story. Yeah, you know, totally. just, just to get just to get the funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think those um, organizing bodies need to look at themselves as well in terms of, you know, what they accept as diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what if I'm an Asian artist, but I don't want to write about my culture at all? Like, is that still going to get support in the same way if I'm like, I'm going to create an immersive Asian Canadian immersive theater experience, which is kind of what Mandy thinks she has to do with this mm-hmm. show? Well, I don't blame her. Mm-hmm. You know, she wants the money to do her show. Mm-hmm. So it, it must be difficult for her to the, the back and forth as to as to what uh, she should do in terms of, you know, applying for all of these, all of these grants. Um, I've helped people on grants and I know <laughs> the, the pain of trying to find, you know, the right language yeah. that's going to resonate uh, with an arts council. Yeah. And there's all these arts councils have priority groups, which is like, I I mean, I think it's, it's got, it's like pros and cons. I definitely see why it was introduced as a way to bring forward um, support to folks that have traditionally uh, received less support, but it can definitely sometimes border on like, is this tokenism? Like, is this actually moving us forward in the way that we think it is? Right. It's like, you need to um, acknowledge the diversity within those groups mm-hmm, as well yeah as well 100 percent. okay so um how is what does your mom think of your hot pot skills your parents <laughs> your family what do they think of your hot pot skills um I mean my mom came to see the version in Kingston my mom's my parents are both very supportive um but I definitely like this during the show it's not just you're eating hot pot like I make it very clear that if you're eating my family's hot pot recipe I literally texted my mom I was like mom <laughs> tell me what's in our hot pot and that's what we're going to be eating in the show um especially just because like you said there's so much diversity within um even just the East Asian community in terms mm-hmm. of like how people eat their hot pot um so hopefully <laughs> hopefully she'll come to the show and be like that was delicious I do think she'll um, have some things to say about, uh, you know, we're on an indie theater budget, so we can't have like uh, all the seafood and like as much food as we would have at home. But I'm hoping that she will hopefully uh, <laughs> think fondly about my hot pot skills. <laughs> She'll be worrying that people will go away hungry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you play Mandy, and mm-hmm. I understand there's another character um, as well, mm-hmm. uh, Kenzie Sang. Mm-hmm. And what role do they play? 
So Kenzie Zhang is playing the production assistant. So I, I like to describe this show as like a one and a half person show. It started out as a one person show. It was very like autobiographical. I'm the only performer. Um, and I go up and I'm like, my name's Amanda Lynn, um, which still happens. But I guess as I was starting to question why I was doing this and like the pressures of the funding bodies and trying to like have this more cynical voice, it didn't make sense for it to come from Mandy, who's this very naive character. Um, so there and there started to be this second character of the production assistant who starts the show pretty much like in the shadows, like any PA would be, but starts to come out more and more as they're um, becoming uncomfortable with the direction that Mandy's taken this show in. And at first, the production assistant was kind of like another autobiographical like version of me. And it was only when we got to Toronto and Kenzie Zhang played the production assistant at Ergo Pink Fest. Um, that that person be started to be like their own character and like an individual separate from me. Um, so yeah, that's been, it's been really, really nice. Like that's been one of the big ways the play has changed is the relationship between Mandy and the PA. With the performance at Cahoots Theatre, I take it you have a new director with um, Esther June. Mm-hmm. So what's it been like to work with her as a director and also with uh, Eileen Kwan as your dramaturge? They're both incredible. I'm very, very, very grateful to be working with them. Um, funny story is that I, when I was doing this production in Kingston and I was like 21, I was emailing all these people in Toronto being like, this is a show I'm doing. I know you probably won't come because it's like a two hour drive, but um, just wanted to let you know that it's happening. And Esther was one of the people that I emailed and I didn't get a response or anything. I wasn't really expecting a response. Um, so then down the road, when Cahoots was looking for someone to direct the workshop of my play and then eventually pr- the production, and they mentioned Esther. And when Esther and I first spoke, she was like, oh, yeah, you emailed me about this um, like four years, well, I guess like two or three years ago. Um, so that's a story I like to tell people in terms of like, yeah, you're planting all these seeds and you don't always know which ones are going to take root. Um, But working with Esther has been incredible. She obviously has a very, very uh, long experience with directing um, over at the Stratford Festival and doing all sorts of work um, internationally as well. Um, I really appreciate working with her and getting her perspective of what it was like for her to be coming up in the same industry at a different time. Um, I also appreciate um, her ability to I, it's obviously been a lot of pressure on me as the both the um, the writer and the performer. So I feel very much supported by her and also feel I trust that she'll tell me that she'll be real with me <laughs> about um, what needs to happen to make it into an ideal version of the play. Mm-hmm. And Alin, um, I first met because she was on the jury for the Ergo Pink Fest that I mentioned. And when it came time to select dramaturgs for each of the pieces, Alin was kind of like, I want that one. Um, so we've continued to stay working together since then. Um, so after Ergo Pink Fest, Olin and I met up at a coffee shop to kind of debrief the process. It was supposed to be a very chill conversation, but I remember I ended up crying. Like I didn't expect to. I was just crying. I was like, I haven't had the opportunity to have like a mentor who's an older Asian woman before. And it just meant so much to me. Um, and we've had a very close bond since then. Um, She's been very, very helpful during the process, especially since I'm doing kind of I'm doing double duty where I'm the writer and the actor. It's nice to have someone in rehearsal who can like take notes and reminds me of script changes or things that need to happen from the writing angle when I'm kind of an actor brain. Mm -hmm. 
So this is a reminder to you further along the way to start mentoring because there's somebody somebody out there who also is in your position who's never had, you know, somebody Asian mentor them. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that I... I I remember when I was first um, graduating Queens and I was doing a lot of reaching out to folks and just, I guess, kind of realizing the value of different kinds of connections you can have, whether it be to someone with more experience than you, less experience, the people that are your peers, and all of that is so valuable for a variety of reasons. You said your parents are supportive, Mm -hmm. um, which is is not... um... It's not often the case when people enter the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, what has made them so open to supporting you? Oh, man, I guess that's maybe partially a question for them. But <laughs> from my perspective, um, I don't know. I look at my parents and my mom especially, and they're very like my mom's very creative. Um, she's a psychologist. And um, as she was growing up, she didn't really have a choice on what she was going to be. She knew she should be a doctor of some kind. So her choice was to go like brain doctor instead of just like a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's also like a write, like she writes, um, she does all sorts of creative things. So I, I don't know, I feel very privileged in that because of my parents' sacrifices and the choices that they made, I'm able to go and do the thing that I'm passionate about. And I hope that what I'm doing will also kind of <laughs> bring honor. Sounds so Asian, but like, <laughs> but just like, um, like show my like appreciation for them, like through this show. Is your um, dad uh, creative as well? My dad's an engineer. He, he's like creative in his own way. He's definitely more of, between the two of them, more on the more logical brains, but he like growing up, he would play guitar and he would like tell us he was a great, still is like a very good storyteller. Like I still have very good memories of like the stories I would make him tell me over and over uh, growing up. Well, I guess you come by it naturally. This your mom's a writer, your dad's a storyteller. Yeah. And you're, so you're in the right, prof- you're in the right profession. Yeah. And <laughs> Yeah, and I grew up doing so much storytelling too. Like I was always putting on plays and like making my family come and watch me, uh, making my brother participate <laughs> as as an unwilling actor. Um, which I know some people are like, that's just being a child. But I definitely like started like I've definitely my passion for storytelling started from a very very young age. And what did you what did you study at university? What stream? I actually studied psychology, so it's, okay. yeah, it's funny. My brother and I are both, we're both psychology majors. We like to make fun of my mom for this because obviously she's a psychologist. Um, but my brother and I both studied psychology and both of us are like working in the arts now. So <laughs> it only somewhat worked out. But I I do, like, I, there's definitely times where I wish I had studied theater. There's definitely like a value in that sort of education. And there's things that I feel like I missed out on. But I also feel like, I can bring a different angle to my work as a theater maker. I I have a social psychology background specifically. I did my thesis in like attitudes and influence, which (laughs) definitely can apply to theater in terms of trying to like impart a message onto your audience. And even in the play, there are psychology bits. I the character of Mandy kind of uses this opportunity to like explain like how, why she is the way she is but taking it a step back and able and like the safety of being able to be like, this is objective because it's science. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely finds its way into the the work that I do. So would you say this is a comedy drama? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that. 
Okay. And it's 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume there's no intermission. No, there isn't. Although okay. there's definitely pauses here and there as people like cook and eat. Hot pot's a very involved meal. All right. Well, it sounds like a, it's going to be a wonderful evening. And uh, I look forward to meeting Mandy and uh, and meeting you also, Amanda. <laughs> Thank you so much, Donna. I really appreciate this. And a reminder that Between a Walk and a Hot Pot by Amanda Lynn runs January 28th to February 12th. It's presented by Cahoots Theatre. It takes place in the BMO Incubator, which is inside the Theatre Centre at 1115 Queen Street West. And for more information, you can go to cahoots.ca. Right here, right now, every day. CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Thank you so much for spending time with me today on The More, The Merrier. This is Donna G. Before I sign off, I want to let you know the track that you heard at the beginning of my interview with Amanda Lynn is called Questioning My Path, and that's by Kelly Lee Evans. I'm going to end the show with Melanie Durant and Sky. And as usual, you can reach me on my socials, TMTM with Donna G on Instagram, Facebook, and still on Twitter. Otherwise, www.ciut.fm, click on the more the merrier and all my information is there. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.